Well, welcome to the Preacher's Podcast for Proper 19. We are in our series called Hard Truth. Uh, We are thinking about how Jesus, as he makes his way to the cross, is talking about discipleship and doing it in pretty blunt terms. Um, We're listening to some of these hard sayings from Jesus and to related sections of scripture that expand on those hard truths. Jesus is challenging us as we listen to these words to wrestle with them and challenging our listeners to do the same. This is our Savior, though, remember. He wants to challenge us and maybe push us a little bit because he loves us and wants our faith to deepen and to grow so that we can take up our crosses and follow him. So today we are thinking about proper 19 in year C. That's the Sunday that falls on or between September 11th through 17th. Let's say hello to our preachers for this series. Well, first of all, I'm John Mitchell from Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, moderating once again today. Uh, And with us as they've been through this series are Pastor Ben Tomzak from Bethel Lutheran Church in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and Pastor John Bergman, serving Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Downers Grove, Illinois. With us today also is Professor Tom Cuck, who formerly taught at Wisconsin Lutheran Seminary, now I should call him Pastor Cuck, uh, started serving at Atonement Lutheran Church in Milwaukee as of January 2022. So thank you all for being here on the podcast today. Um, The theme of the week is kind of interesting in the context of this series um, because, you know, a lot of these texts that we're encountering in this Hard Truth series are what we often call the hard sayings of Jesus, these really challenging sayings um, that uh, really uh, go after the issues that uh, hinder our discipleship um, and do so, as I said, in in a kind of a blunt and forthright way. Today, though, we get one of the famous sections that is just so rich in gospel. Um, But at the same time, it does pose some challenges to Jesus' listeners Um, especially to those, and I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but to those who think they're okay without him, uh, those who think that they are fine and can attain righteousness all on their own. Jesus does challenge them by means of these rich gospel parables uh, and points them back to him, points us back to him as our only source of life. So today we'll be talking about um, the found are left, the lost are found as kind of the theme that ties this week together. So we'll be thinking about lostness and the different forms that that can take and how Jesus in his relentless love goes after the lost and finds them and saves them. So I'll leave the the theme of the week there uh, for now, but let's look at the other scripture readings for today. And let's turn to Ben Tomzak for a summary maybe of the scripture readings, especially Ben, the first and second readings, if you could, since we'll be focusing on the gospel of the day. Um, How do these readings today tie together? Yeah, sure thing, John. Um, In in these two lessons, and really all three, because these two are driving us to the gospel, Jesus is going to talk to us about something that we talk a lot about, but don't do very well. And maybe we don't like to do all that much, which is to Go after those who were once a part of our fellowship, those who were part of the church, and now have left. They've disappeared. They've done something terrible, horrible, very bad. And in both cases, we're dealing with people who probably committed pretty crass sexual sins, uh, 
prostitution and, and perhaps even a form of incest. And, and uh, this is just something we don't thrill to do, to, to bring back people into the church, even though we say we do, because it means actually dealing with them. And we find out that while we think all the work really belongs to the person who sinned, they got to repent, they got to come back. It turns out a lot of the responsibility is on us, the seeker. So we've got Hosea, who is famous for having a, a, an adulterous wife who, who seems to have been not just uh, an adulteress, but perhaps is engaging in some sort of prostitution. And, and she serves as a picture of Israel, God's chosen people, his bride who have run off. And yet God, with his prophet Hosea, shows, I, I still love you and I want to show you my love. Um, and so he tells Hosea, you're going to buy back Gomer and, and you're going to be a faithful husband to her. Uh, the warning here and in Corinthians and Luke is not to revel in this lostness. It's not to be abused. Well, God loves me. He's going to come after me. Why should I go in the right direction? He's going to get me anyways, which is exactly how humans act. I can, I can repent on my deathbed, though. Um, though, as uh, uh, Walther says, you promised grace, but you're not promised uh, tomorrow. Uh, and, and we see that from the way the Lord talks to Gomer, too, of um, you don't get to be a prostitute anymore. You're, you're going to come back, um, but you don't get to do this anymore. Uh, and we see how what a struggle it was for her, because as God shifts from Gomer uh, to, to Israel, he talks about how Israel will come back trembling. There will be pain and sorrow in this time of lostness. We have to know that these people were pursuing. Maybe it started out fun. You know, the prodigal son in the parable we don't get to read today, wine, women, and song, woo! Uh, but by the end of it, he was in poverty and pain and and uh, illness and, and disaster, as, as no doubt Gomer was. And also the, the, the unknown man from 2 Corinthians. Um, many people, I think, assume that this man was the man referred to in 1 Corinthians 5, the man who was sleeping with his father's wife. Um, and he's undergone church discipline, as he ought to have done. And it's painful to do that. It's, Paul calls it a punishment that's inflicted on someone. But it has a purpose, and it's for a time. It's, it's until the, the Lord's word works in the heart of a person to save him. Uh, and we see where it ends. Paul says this ends with forgiveness. Just as, just as um, Hosea was called to forgive his wife, so the congregation is called not to say to this man, see, we told you this was a dumb thing to do, and, and how stupid could you be, but, but to welcome back with rejoicing, as we're going to hear in the gospel. And, and Paul says this comes with forgiveness and comfort and a reaffirmation of love. So you see, to be the, the seeker, to, to go after uh, the person lost in sin is, is work on our part. We don't just wait for them to come to their senses. We have to do the work that we call it the Matthew 18 work. And, and, and we're, we're wondering, will we stand firm or will the devil get us and say, yeah, don't worry about discipline, be lax. These aren't worth punishing, which would cause the, the destruction of souls and people to stay lost. Or will we be vengeful in dealing with the lost? Um, will, we, will we get our pound of flesh and keep driving it home by how once they were excommunicated? Um, that is the warning. Um, and in all of this, of course, overarching all of it is, is Christ, who is the one who truly paid a price uh, to bring us back, uh, to, to save us from our lostness. He paid his holy precious blood, not just a few dollars as Hosea paid and not just some time as the Corinthians paid, but his holy precious blood uh, to save us. And now in these parables, we will see a picture of Christ at work um, as our shepherd, uh, his work through the church. And if we were to get that last parable, also the, the love of a father waiting to receive back those who have left him. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, thank you for showing us the links between these themes that uh, 
connect the readings for today. Um, let's turn then to the gospel, and we've made reference to it already at this point, but let's dig into it a little bit further. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, and that in the Hard Truth series that we're in is the suggested sermon text for this week. Uh, John Bergman, could you get us started as we think about preaching this text? Just highlight anything that you uncovered in your text study. Sure. Uh, Jesus is talking, gathering around with the tax collectors and sinners, and uh, these this type of sinners could certainly be people who had been in the church and walked away, kind of what Ben was talking about. I think it could also be people who never were in the church, too. I think he could be doing both uh, you know, discipline and outreach, maybe all at the same time. Kind of doesn't matter. They're lost. But the irony is the people who are kind of listening to this and grumbling about what he's doing are the Pharisees. The, the Pharisees think that they are found <laughs> and that the people Jesus is talking to are completely lost. The Pharisees think that they're the people God rejoices in and the people Jesus is dealing with are the people that God is just disgusted in. And so Jesus uses some parables here to kind of turn that whole thing upside down, to really expose their hearts that the Pharisees are becoming the ones who are lost or perhaps are lost in their unbelief. And, and these sinners are being found by him. Uh, God is going to be sick of the Pharisees' self-righteousness. He's going to delight and rejoice in these sinners who are repenting. With that being said, Luke 15 is sometimes nicknamed the lost and found chapter. We have the, these three parables about a sheep and a coin, later about a son who's lost and is found. We don't get to that one in our, our sermon text for today. But in each parable, you kind of have a character who acts in a way that seems, well, almost unrealistic to normal human behavior, where we see what's going on and kind of say, really, that that almost seems like over the top, something beyond human. And in a way it is because it's reflecting upon God's divine love, which is not human either, a divine love which seeks the lost at all cost. And it picks up right away in, in verse four when Jesus asked this rhetorical question, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go look after the lost sheep? And obviously the, it's expecting a yes answer, but when I kind of think about that, I go, really? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I have, you know, I studied theology, not business, but to leave 99, go looking for one, I, I don't know, maybe one lost sheep is just the cost of doing business. And then what are these sheep? They're not like those cute, cuddly, stuffed animals that our kids have in their rooms. They're mangy, dirty, and insect-infested, stinking animals. And that one lost sheep, it's its own fault. It didn't listen to the, the voice of the shepherd. It wandered off. It should get what it, it deserves. And I don't think I'd go to the open country. There's wolves out there, bandits. I could, you know, get hurt. I don't know that I would do this. But boy, we start to see the heart of our Savior and the fact that he asks this question expecting, well, obviously, yeah, that's what you would do because the shepherd loves each and every sheep that much. So right from the beginning, it's kind of a fun chapter that gets us right into the heart of our Savior. Yeah, thank you. I like how you mentioned, uh, John, that, you know, whether you're talking about this as um, uh, kind of inreach or outreach, it fits. Um, whether you are talking about uh, Christian discipline and going after those who have been brought into God's flock, but who are straying, 
or those who have never been part of the flock yet, um, really, I think the love of Jesus reaches out to them all. And so it's our desire as well to reach out to them all. So I think you could make applications um, to either situation. Uh, Tom Cuck, let's, let's go to you next. Um, share any insights that come to mind on this, uh, this beautiful gospel text, if you would. Sure. And uh, this is one of those texts where the, some of the, uh, the details aren't so much in the original language per se. The Greek here is fairly straightforward, uh, but the contextual stuff and the historical things and uh, some of the, 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 the cultural things that we probably don't know as well from like the rabbinism and, and uh, the Mishnah and stuff like that can bring some, some real wealth to this. I want to start off with something that, that John just pointed out when Jesus asked that rhetorical question, which, which man among you, um, you know, the Greek literally is which man from you. And so there's a, there's a bit of a rebuke in that, you know, that, that Jesus is saying, look, you guys would do this. You know, it may sound funny to, to us that you'd be willing to leave the 99 to go after the one, but the, the guy who owns a hundred sheep, at that time is probably a fairly wealthy guy. And yet he would still go and find that sheep because that sheep is a source of, of income with selling the wool and all the other things that can happen with it. Um, he would still do it. So Jesus is saying, so which among you wouldn't do this? If you're going to do that for a sheep, how much more shouldn't I do that for a human? Wow. There is an amazing contrast. And you see the same thing happen in uh, the, the parable of the coin. Uh, suppose there is a woman who has 10 drachma coins. And there's the implication that she, of course, would go looking for it. And so would so would you. It's kind of interesting that in uh, the, the third of the lost parables, the parable of the lost son, there is no comparison like that. And probably it's because Jesus has taken us to a higher level. None of you are going to do this. This just isn't the way humans work. But this is the way God works. And so Jesus brings up, drops that whole comparative thing. He starts with the comparative with here, the parable of the lost coin, which among you wouldn't do this. Of course you'd do this. And then there's the implication of it in the second parable. Then it drops out in the third parable. It seems to be an interesting um, train of thought that, that goes on there. Uh, Adersheim has some really cool words on this. I, I still am a big fan of Adersheim. His stuff is dated, you know, and so some of his analogies limp a little bit, and you know, some of what he knows about the textual evidence and stuff is not up to date. But boy, he does have a way of cutting to the chase on this. And, um, and one of the things he does is he gives us this really cool look into some of the, what the rabbis had to say. So for example, um, he quoted from the, the writings about the Pharisees, there is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. Did you catch that? Mm -hmm. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That's what the Pharisees taught. And so now you hear Jesus at the end of each of these parables saying, there is great rejoicing in heaven over this lost one who is found. Wait, what? <laughs> you know, that, that just sounds 
crazy in the ears of the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And that's part of the shock value of, of these parables. One of the things to look for when you're, when you're working with parables are what are the surprises in here. And uh, this is a huge surprise. No one would expect that, uh, that this would happen, at least in that cultural milieu. Um, that is not what would be expected, but that is the reality. Uh, that builds a little bit too in verse, um, in verse seven, when Jesus talks about there's more rejoicing over one who repents than over 99 who don't need to, we have to be careful that we don't push this too hard because the point of the parable isn't about those who didn't need to, unless you're seeing that as Jesus referring to the way the Pharisees and the teachers of the law tended to see the world. The Pharisees and teachers of the law tended to see the world as there are people who need to repent and there are people who aren't. And of course, they put themselves into the, the realm of the group who didn't need to repent, right? So when Jesus says there's more joy in heaven over the one who repents than the 99 who don't need to repent, put your quote marks around that. And he seems to be waxing sarcastic and, uh, and saying to those Pharisees and teachers of the law, you've got this idea about yourself that you don't need to repent and you think there's joy in heaven over you. There's not. Rather, there's joy in heaven over these tax collectors and sinners who have come to me and who I can now share wonderful love of God with. And when God works faith in their heart, there is a party in heaven over that. Wow. And said, so I know <laughs> which which group do we want to put ourselves into? We can have that discussion later. Um, but for me, the lost sinner, to know that there's a party in heaven as God continues to call me back into his kingdom is really cool. I think I'll stop there. I think some of the other things we, we may come up as we continue to talk through the text. So I'll, I'll stop there. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for all that, Tom. Um, you mentioned looking for the surprises in parables, and uh, I preached on this text once, and that was kind of a a theme I picked up on to connect the different parts of the, the text together. Um, I ran into this fancy phrase um, and I, I didn't write down who said it. So apologies to whoever, whoever I'm uh, plagiarizing here, but um, they, he said that parables destabilize our worldview, destabilize our worldview. So they take the, the typical way that we look at things and here's how the world works and here's how things function. And Jesus will tell a story where, yeah, as, as John said, initially, it kind of makes you scratch your head. Um, yeah, wouldn't, wouldn't you go look at looking for one lost sheep? Well, uh, I, I don't know. Wouldn't you have a party when you found a lost coin? Um, I, maybe, you know, but so I think that's the amazing part of the grace here. That's the, the surprise that's here, Tom. Yeah, just to ju jump on that, that phrase it resonates with me in the theological word book of the Old Testament. Um, I don't remember where I found this. I think it's from the Psalms where it talks about how Jesus will speak in parables. Is that Psalm 78? Am I Sounds remembering right. correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that the definition of a parable, there was something like this, that the parable forces us to deal with things that are real as opposed to things that would be supposed or you would think they would be. And uh, so your, your phraseology resonated with me. Mm -hmm. and I found very similar phraseology to, uh, to, to talk about that. And yeah, Jesus' parables cause that to happen. That's for sure. Right. 
Yeah. So it's this shocking um, love for the lost that we see here uh, coming through in the parables, um, both of the, the, the lost sheep and the lost coin love that just takes us by surprise. Um, and I think that's right. That's the point Jesus is driving at, isn't it? You're right. And then he'll take it up a notch as he goes on with the parable of the, the two lost sons and the, the loving father that comes next. Um, uh, here's a, a one th other thing you said uh, made me think of another point in the text, Tom. Um, a few a series ago, Paul Zell was one of our regular preachers. He wrote an article, uh, you can look it up, I'm sure, on the seminary essay file and the, the quarterly on who are the righteous persons in this parable um, and looking at the different options. I, I, I tend to favor what you said, Tom. I think it fits the the broader context of the different parables and what we know about the Pharisees and those who tried to justify themselves. Paul also in that article raises the possibility that it could be in reference to people who have already repented, that that would be another way to understand it, which, which um, it, it, it doesn't really change the theme of the parable. Um, it, it would just bring out the aspect of uh, those who wander away uh, Jesus prioritizes them. Um, and, you know, that's what we often do too sometimes is we spend maybe a lot of time as pastors going after those who are wrestling and struggling with their faith. Meanwhile, those who are, you know, from our perspective and our assessment are kind of doing okay at the moment, we say, I'm going to devote some more time to those who need it. So, so that's an article you might want to look up or preachers might want to check out as they're wrestling with that. But I think really either one um, fit the context of the parable and the main point of love for the lost comes through here. Um, how about, uh, we were kind of hinting at it already and talking about it already, but law and gospel in this text, what are some basic things you bring out? Or we kind of, okay, we're lost. Jesus finds the lost. People are lost. Jesus goes after them and seeks them. Um, but uh, what other dimensions of law and gospel uh, do you stress from the text as you're preaching on this? Ideas for preachers? I think, uh, you know, just putting myself in these this situation or trying to get our people to think about this too. And so I search my heart, well, what would happen if these types of people who Jesus is dealing with really did walk through the doors of our church? And it's easy to say, we'd be so happy, would we? <laughs> you just ask the question. If someone came in off the street who smelled like a sheep who had wandered off into the open country, would you get out of your normal pew place that you always occupy and say, come, sit next to me. Here's a bulletin. Let me show you where it is. Um, as pastors too, even, Lord, forgive me, but sometimes don't we see those prospects in our church who are the, well, for lack of a better word, the suburban upper middle class, probably a good giving unit who will be able to serve quickly if they join our congregation and go, yay, I rejoice. And then you have that person who's going to be a prospect who's been battling addiction for four decades, who's made a hot mess of their life in this way and that. And Jesus calls me to search my heart a little bit here and say, yeah. do I rejoice as much over that? Or do I think, oh boy, this is going to be so much work. And finally then though, I need to search my heart and realize, wait a second, 
I was that lost one too. And that will probably lead us more into the gospel. So I'm not going to you know, go down too far down that road, but to say, wait a second, I was just as lost and condemned by nature and I needed his help too. Yeah. So that's a thought contrasting Jesus love for the lost with our sometimes uh, lack of love for the lost or, or some aspect of that, Tom. Yeah. I think the the first couple of verses, which it's, I guess it's sometimes easy to skip over that contextual stuff, but there's a lot of meat in there for us to chew on. Um, and, and I refer, referred to it earlier, but I think it maybe can come out now. Who am I? Which group would I have been in? Would I have been the Pharisee or would I have been the tax collectors and sinners? And I, I, I think the answer is yes. I mean, as, as I look at myself in the mirror, um, how often kind of how John referenced, don't I, I don't know, um, maybe subconsciously or even consciously say, oh, Lord, I thank you that I am better than other men are. I've not made the wreck out of my life that so other, so many others have made. Ha, huh. how that, what, what horrible, horrible thought process that is, as it fails to recognize my own sinfulness. Or on the other hand, how often don't I look at myself and say, man, what a horrible sinner I am. Um, how could I keep doing that? And how can I keep thinking this? And how could I have even considered saying that? And what a wretched man I am. Who can rescue me from this body of death? It, uh, um, and, and there the law is more that I recognize that the mess that I keep on making. And so I, I think I, it's, it's wise for us to see ourselves in, in both and then maybe to help our people see themselves as, as being both. And of course, the beautiful love of God applies to both, that both are lost. It uh, had God in wonderful grace goes looking. Yeah. Uh, ben, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, put those two together and you kind of ask, how terrible is it to be lost and not even know you're lost? Mm-hmm. You know, that, mm-hmm. that um, point. you know, these, these Pharisees who are quote unquote faithful churchgoers probably, and yet how faithful are they? I, um, Bo Yertz uh, is talking about customs and he acknowledges there are a lot of things we do as customs that are free. And one, a bad one is to not go to church. That is a bad custom. And, and he has a pretty striking phrase. You can be eternally lost when you spend your Sundays doing anything but devoting yourself to the word of God when you're out puttering in your garden, running in a race, whatever. We, we do and think there are so many things that we can do and still be called or found a Christian, um, whether it's abandoning the means of grace or, or in this specific case, being such a jerk about my righteousness. And, and I think with what you said before, John, um, I don't know that we have very many people who would say they're against evangelism or church discipline. I mean, you, they, I've, I've run into one or two people in my life who would say that's useless or pointless or who would kind of seem to be on the other side of that. But most people are, they're for it, you know. Um, and yet, if we uh, kind of go through our social media, would that person that we're trying to reach out with get the impression that you kind of hate them because of the political views you espouse or because of the posts you say about a skeptic or LGBTQ people or them, just whoever them might be, that you might say you like the lost, but everything you do with your life tells me you, you don't really like them all that much. Um, and so there's some some mixed messages there, that arrogance where I, I, that was awesome. Those insights you had, Tom, from from the rabbis, you know, we read in the Bible, God doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but that's not my point of view. And uh, so most of what I say and do kind of 
I, I, I am, I am a lover of schadenfreude. I want to see those guys get theirs. And um, yeah, you just, we're just going to get crushed all along the way here with our, our arrogance and our unwillingness to actually do the work. You know, you know, people who won't come out to, to knock on a door. Um, it's not just because of fright and people who won't call a friend and call them out on a sin because, well, they're, they're family or it's, 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 it's scary. No. What, what are we doing? Yeah. Tom. Yeah. I've, I've been, I want to build a little bit on your, uh, your point that you can be lost and not know it. And Adersheim again, so helpful. He, uh, he, points out that there's sort of an interesting progression uh, of the lostness in in these parables that in the parable of the lost sheep there's a foolishness aspect that the lost sheep is just sort of I don't know where I heard this quote but I love it that uh, sheep don't try to get lost they just nibble their way to lostness that's mm-hmm. <laughs> so right. so right. true and uh, and and how easy it can be for us human beings to just sort of nibble our way to lostness and for those of us who are believers you know it's I don't think any of us go, I'm going to decide to become an unbeliever. I, I just don't think that happens very often, maybe once in a great while, but I think more it's like, yeah, you know, we'll miss church this Sunday for this and this Sunday for that, and this Sunday for that. And yeah, we'll skip our Bible reading for this and for that and for this. And all of a sudden we've nibbled our way off into uh, further pastors and away from the pastors. He points out that the parable of the lost coin, uh, the lostness, I don't know how quite to define this, but the, the lostness isn't so much the fault of the coin. It's just a matter of circumstances. You know, that that some people are lost just because of the circumstances into which they were born um, or into which they find themselves. And then he points out that in the parable of the lost son, it becomes willfulness. That uh, the, the, the parable of the lost son, the, the lost son said, I'm heading to a distant country. <laughs> I'm doing that because I want to. And boy, how doesn't each one of those uh, apply to us? That um, maybe I just foolishly have nibbled my way off to lostness, or I fail to see the circumstances around me that could lead me to become lost, how foolish again on my part, or that I willfully, arrogantly, uh, foolishly say, I'm going to go get lost. Um, and all three of those law thoughts can apply to each one of us, I think, pretty clearly. I think so. I think yeah. Ben? I think there's another uh, way to also talk about how this affects our congregations and us as preachers. And and um, I, what you just said about the coin is interesting that, you know, no coin wanders off. We, we think there are gremlins taking our money, but no, it's we're, <laughs> we're misplacing it or we're we're dropping it or whatever, but, but there's a condemnation to a preacher and to congregations. If we know our people so little that we don't realize they're lost, that we don't know who's lost or found that we aren't paying attention to our money or to our sheep that, that they could be gone. So it's incumbent upon us to, to, to know our people. We can't know they're lost if we don't know them. And, and that's a two way street where so many people um, use the church, you know, literally they use it like, well, I got my kids to Sunday school and they're being watched for a while or school becomes daycare. So it's definitely on both sides of people using the church or me just kind of going through the motions, but I'm actually doing the work. Paul makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear. The one looking for the lost has a lot of hard work to do in the search and in, in, in the return of, of affirming and comforting and forgiving. And you said it before, John, where I got this hot mess of People and every person, you know, um, the church has as many sinners as, as members, so they're all hot messes. And and so this patience Jesus is teaching us that this person I found today is going to get lost again tomorrow. You think that sheep 
oh, okay, I'll never get lost again. <laughs> no, that's not how it works. It's a week later, here I am going back to their house. So it's it's a word for preachers where Jesus is is getting to us and our attitude on on our work a little bit too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These uh, parables that or other sections of scripture that that talk about reaching out to the lost always pricks my conscience. You know, um, why didn't I why why did I not do more, care more, you know, devote more devote more resources to this? But um, but let's let's get into the gospel. Um, over all of this is this loving, seeking uh, savior who just loves and uh, loves seeking the lost, loves looking for the lost, loves celebrating when he has found them. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. How do you express the gospel with this text, or what um, unique? aspects of the text do you emphasize as you proclaim the gospel from it? Yeah, that's a good conversation because uh, Tom and Ben, you're excellent on that law stuff. I feel pretty convicted too. So yeah, let's get into some gospel. And, uh, <laughs> I'm not for... sure if we should say thank you or. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, well done law preachers. No, I'm kidding. Come and save us, John. Um, yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, my goodness, th- thank God that it is Jesus who finally finds them. You know that, uh, yeah, God calls us to show up God calls us to, to share the gospel, but thank God, I, I can't, I can't convert one dead heart. I really can't. And thank God I don't have to. So he is going to find those two and he's going to use someone like me, but then that he found me and he, he rejoices in me. But then, you know, just maybe another little level there. He, he doesn't grumble at all in this, you know, that the shepherd doesn't come back home and just say, wow, what an awful day that was. And uh, I can't believe it. Or, you know, in human relationships, when, when someone sinned against us and they kind of cower and they, they, they cough up, don't, aren't we tempted to just say, yeah, well, now you better realize what you've done. And now you owe me one. And now you're going to regain my, tr-. there's, there's just none of that in here. He just rejoices. He doesn't care how much effort he took. The most important thing is that he can hold this lamb in his arms or, or this coin, you know, in his hand. And that's what he feels about me. Wow. What love. Yeah. I also note the, the over the top, rejoicing um, as kind of a part of the, the gospel uh, in these parables too. Um, I think it, uh, I used the illustration once of, you know, sometimes you, you misplace your phone and, you know, there's this panic and what am I going to do without my phone? I got everything on there and you're asking friends, you know, Hey, can you call my phone? Maybe I'll hear it ring somewhere. Uh, I said it on do not disturb. So that's not going to work. And when you finally find your phone, you know, it's a happy day. You're totally relieved. But do you say, I'm having a big party, guys. Oh, what's the party for? Found my phone. Well, uh, yeah, that's okay. That's a little much, you know, but, you know, the one coin that is found, let's have, let's celebrate. Let's call my friends and neighbors and the one lost sheep, it's back. Um, And I think there's a, a beautiful picture of God's joy, as Tom mentioned before, over this sinner who was lost and now is found. Uh, Tom? Yeah, I love those thoughts. And just to, to take them a, maybe a step further and add a little more thoughts to it, you know, the, the parable of the lost sheep, the implication is that a guy with 100 sheep is probably fairly wealthy um, and yet goes and seeks out just that one and then throws the party. You know, the wealthy guy who loses one sheep, <laughs> not that big a deal. And yet, throws this magnificent party 
and that God would throw that kind of a party for me? How cool. Now you get to the parable of the lost coin. Uh, 10 drachmas, a drachma we are pretty sure was about a day's wage for a day laborer. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we'll just throw it out in 21st century American terms. If we're talking 20 bucks an hour times eight hours, you know, 160 bucks. Uh, This is not a huge amount. Um, and so this, this lady, it's probably like a little bit of a nest egg for her to kind of get her through. It's uh, however you want to refer to it as her, maybe her savings account, whatever, but it's not that much. I mean, it's significant, but it's not like it's losing 10 grand or something like that. Um, and yet she too throws a party. I'm not worth that much. And yet God throws a party over me. What a cool, cool gospel thought that is for us to uh, to, to hold on to. Ben? Yeah, the ones, um, I, I thought a lot about that, that the, our ministry is not usually Pentecost. With thousands, it's usually one person at a time, one you know, one hospital visit, one shut-in, one, one crying sinner, one delinquent family, one whatever it is. And, and that's the most important thing we can be doing at that moment. That's the most precious thing there is. And, um, and then, like you said, not just us to celebrate, which technically we do in our liturgy. We have a nice little paragraph we're supposed to read when a person, you know, comes back to the church. Although I wonder how often we do that. And we probably try to downplay it because it's embarrassing to be with all of We should be, that should be almost like a potluck every time someone comes back. But God says in heaven there is. And um, what I imagined, uh, my, my favorite time of the sports here is uh, like playoff baseball. There's nothing like the sound of a, a jazzed up crowd you know, the home team's crowd is just waiting to explode. And then little things make them like a single in the, in the playoffs makes the crowd go crazy nuts. And it's like, and it makes you at home just filled and that's heaven. And it's not just like one chance, you know, the church isn't a place where you got your one chance and then bang, you're out. You were talking about your computer, John. And I'm just terrified. Anytime I do tech support on my own computer, because I think I'll do something irrevocable. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we think the same thing about God that, you know, okay, you, you're in, and then you got lost. In fact, there've been controversies about this over church history, right? You're in or you're not, and that's it. And God doesn't say that. One sinner who repents, and that could be you 99,000 times, where the, and the party is the same every time in heaven. The roar of the crowd doesn't diminish every single time. That, that is mind-boggling that it is always worth it to God. It's not like he gets to a point where he says, well, oh, fine, you know. Maybe we'll let them in this time, but not next time. Yeah, no rejoicing and, and, every time. And then that point, and who's in the crowd, you know, according to the, the angels are rejoicing. You know, that those angels rejoiced the day you were baptized. Those angels rejoiced when I came to faith. Those angels are watching your ministry and rejoicing when God uses. The ministry feels so lonely sometimes, but the angels and Jesus are rejoicing over me and what he, he does through me. How cool. Love that uh, baseball analogy there, Ben. Yeah, yeah, Tom. Yeah, it's a cool analogy, Ben. I love the thoughts about the angels. There, another way this is maybe taking us just a slightly different direction is uh, to focus on a couple of aspects of God's love. Um, again, Adersheim helped me with with seeing this one, but in in the first parable, the lost coin or the lost sheep, excuse me. There's there's more of the focus on God's willingness to seek out the lost, and uh, wow, how cool that God was willing to go look 
go look for me. In the second one, there's a little bit more focus on the hard work necessary. You know, it talks about her getting down on her knees and lighting a lamp and, and uh, sweeping a place. And here's where some understanding of archaeology and the historical setting can be helpful. A whole lot of people lived in caves. Well, if you drop a small silver coin onto the cave floor, that is not a nice level surface, most likely. It's got all kinds of nooks and crannies and bumps and stuff. And so, and it's dark in there. And so to try to find a lost coin in there is going to be hard. If they didn't live in a, a cave, they probably lived in what's called a four-room house. It, uh, and there where you would keep the money like this would be sort of in the back room where there's not any openness. There wouldn't be any windows. Um, at least that's the way we think they look of course are on a lot of those four room houses that still exist we can find the uh the the, uh, the foundations for them pretty readily but not the whole houses anymore but there seems to have been no windows in those bottom rooms and that's where this kind of cache would have been kept so again you're looking at darkness and you're looking at a dirt floor that probably is uneven and so to try to find this is hard and yet god was willing to put that kind of energy into saving me. He was willing to get down on his knees. He was willing to light his lamp so that he could find me who's only a drachma, <laughs> if even that. And so and then in the, the, the next one, to, to just carry it out, the focus is more on restoration, that, uh, that God is willing to take that which had willfully gone away, and God restores that person to himself. And so God has done that with me, who willfully walked away and who God has now restored. But that, of course, is a sermon for another time. Right, right. Uh, ben? Just to uh, um, let you know that uh, Edersheim wasn't making it up out of whole cloth or totally off. Ambrose kind of had the same view of those parables. Ah, cool. Um, he, he talked about uh, first comes mercy, then intercession, then reconciliation. And uh, he tiptoes... Uh, right under the verge of allegory, maybe like saying like, in the first parable, this is Christ, you know, the, the, the shepherd carrying us in the second parable, this is the church, our mother cleaning, cleaning to find us in the third parable is the father. And that's an easy one. That's not allegory at all, but the father who receives us. And, and then he said, and this just, this one stuck with me. And when I preach this text, I'm certainly going to use this Ambrose quote, let us rejoice that the sheep that had strayed in Adam is lifted on Christ. The shoulders of Christ are the arms of the cross there, I laid down my sins. I rested on the neck of that noble yoke. Yeah, to never forget that in the end, this isn't about my work. This isn't about my diligence in outreach or church discipline. It's, this is the work of our God, of Christ, the, the shepherd of the sheep, the lamb who, who takes us literally on his shoulders. And I like that image of we're resting on the cross and we're resting on Christ. What a great quote. Thanks yeah. for sharing that, Ben. That's awesome. Yeah, I was going to mention the the shepherd aspect. That is one, you know, uh, gospel picture that we have prominent here in the text. I think, you know, we uh, the emphasis in this parable is the searching, uh, the 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 burning heart for searching out the lost. Whereas you have, you know, if you're you, you don't want to steal thunder from yourself when Good Shepherd Sunday rolls around because you know well you you talk about other aspects of Jesus as the shepherd. They will too. remember the sermon by then. Yeah, that's, that's right. probably true. Probably true. <laughs> Go ahead, I guess. Um, and then uh, yeah, in the parable of the lost coin, um, an illustration that I used was um, just trying to draw out. Uh, and Tom mentioned this: how God values us. 
um, that he would search for us and find us and party when we have been found. Um, I use the illustration of the um, error coins. Um, so these are coins, you know, that are minted and something goes wrong with them. So there was one I found uh, called the close AM penny where uh, it was just, just a penny, but it was stamped wrong. So the A and the M in America, United States of America were too close together. Well, um, how much is that error penny worth? Well, in one sense, you could say it's worth exactly one cent because you know it's a penny. But um, I found that in 2012, a coin collector paid over $24,000 for that one penny. Um, so to that coin collector, that one penny was worth a lot, even though, you know, it, it was, it was an, an error, you know, there was something wrong with it, but just use that as an illustration of, um, if you ever doubt your worth to the savior, um, you know, well, look at all these things wrong with me. Look how lost I was. Look how I keep wandering away, whatever. Well, you're worth as much as he's willing to pay for you, and you're worth as much as he is willing to search out and search for you and find you, and that's what he has done, um, and he celebrates when he has done that. So um, another illustration preachers might find, might find useful. Um, any thoughts on how to put the sermon together or other, other thoughts, applications, illustrations, uh, John? Right. Yeah, just those, I think we can, people can connect with things they search for, you know, that are of great value to them. Uh, when my son was like four years old, we're in the Washington DC area and um, we're in a checkout line at a grocery store and he would do this every time. It's what four-year-old boys do, try to get away from mom and dad. And so he'd always go to this coin exchange machine because in the Washington DC area, we have people from every tribe and nation and language living around there. They'd exchange their foreign currency for American but he knew that oftentimes there'd be lost coins that would fall off of the machine. So four years old, he would go on all fours, just head first down on the floor. He's halfway under this machine and we're going, oh man, it's dirty. It's embarrassing even what you're doing. And we go, we have to like pull him by his backside, you know, when they're young like that to get him underneath, out from underneath the machine. And we go, this is so dumb. Why are you doing this? And he'd always rejoice and show it to his sister and say, look what I found and whatever. But then we realized one coin at a time over weeks and months and even a couple of years, he assembled this incredible collection of coins from every tribe and nation and language and people. And when we saw it all, we went, wow, that actually was pretty cool. <laughs> that was worth it. And think about it. Wow, that's what Jesus does for us, right? One coin at a time, one sheep at a time. He finds us and he's not embarrassed. What a miracle of grace to have me as part of his collection and you too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Putting the sermon together. Yeah, I, preachers will have to decide how to do this. Do you talk about uh, everything kind of together in one? Um, do you address the, the lost sheep and the shepherd who seeks and finds uh, kind of law gospel application there? Uh, and then the lost coin and the one who finds and the rejoicing? Or do you kind of merge the, the lostness and the parable together? Um, and then the, the finding gospel uh, together. Um, the preachers will have to decide that. I don't think there's any right way to do that. You'll just have to decide what kind of um, is intuitive for you, maybe, what you think your listeners will be able to grab onto. Um, uh, it, it is possible in some situations, you know, read both of these as the gospel for the day, but maybe focus on one 
because um, there's plenty there um, and make reference to the other. So those are questions preachers can deal with, uh, will have to wrestle with. Um, but I don't know if you have any thoughts in that regard, you guys who have, have worked with this text before. Um, I'm kind of laying out some possibilities without committing to, to any one of them. Um, uh, law gospel approach in this, have you done it different ways or what would you recommend for preachers? Any thoughts? They're kind of all shaking their heads saying, yeah, whatever works, I think. But um, yeah, I, I think so too. Uh, but I think the basic thoughts are here, the lostness contrasted with the, the seeking love of the Savior um, that goes after us. So we are both the objects of Jesus searching and finding. Um, and then there's also, I think, legit application to say uh, he inspires the same love in us too, to, to search and find Um and that defines a lot of the work we do as a Christian community as well, and as individual Christians. So, all right, um, any uh, possibilities for themes or anything that you have used or that you have worked with before? Um, any ideas come to mind? Well, looking at the church discipline angle, I, uh, I uh, had how to create joy in heaven, excommunicate people. <laughs> okay. Wow. But obviously, you're gonna, you know, talk about the need to do church discipline. You know, that right, the right. hard work of law gospel ministry. That's what Paul. If that, you could bring in the Second Corinthians lesson, well, and Hosea, the two parallel yeah. lessons, and say, yeah. look, this has to be addressed. You might have to make someone lost. Mm-hmm. There, you might have to acknowledge their lost condition. Point out their loss. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And right. say this person is lost, so that you can find them, so that we can have the party later. So. Yeah. yeah. So how to create joy in heaven. Yeah, that's a good, a good angle, bringing out the gospel truth there. Um, uh, yeah, and there's obviously many, many possibilities for emphasizing lost and found and, and seeking and finding. Tom? Yeah, and, and this probably isn't a technically correct sermon theme, but I once was lost, but now am found, um, I yeah. think could be a, a cool way. It's probably more of a title than a sermon theme, but, eh, you know, if yeah. it works for you, run with it. Right. Yeah. No, good ideas. Good ideas. Right. And one, uh, just, uh, you know, one, uh, to pose a question again, it's not really a developed theme, but just, is it worth it? Um, because that's finally, you know, <laughs> the Pharisees were wondering, is it worth it to go after these people? Mm-hmm. I might mm-hmm. wonder that too, but how amazing that God thought it was worth it to go after me. And then that changes what I think is worth things too. So yeah. Yeah. So, great thoughts. Yeah. That goes back to the conversation about one, one is worth it. Mm-hmm. You know, that would yeah. tie in some of those thoughts too. Jesus loves a good party. Well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Good. All good ideas. All right. Well, we've been uh, talking for a long time just because there's so much wonderful stuff to address in this text, but we should probably wrap it up and um, turn things over to preachers now to continue working with this text and uh, all the powerful law gospel messages it brings across. The Lord bless you all as you preach his word.